There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and on this edition of the series, we step back to 2016 when John Adams celebrated his 70th birthday. We spoke to the composer and conductor about the music, sounds and even dreams that have defined his life. I often don't have any clear idea what I'm going to do when I sit down. Um, I'm sort of more like a jazz musician. I I go in my studio and, and I just kind of riff. Those of us who wrote music that in one way or another was a little more accessible, we were severely castigated by our colleagues for being sellouts. You know, the real revelation in my life about music is that it is above and beyond all else. It's about feeling. It's about the composer or the performer sharing his or her feeling with another. And in the second part of this podcast, we speak to violinist Leela Josephowitz, who back then performed Adams's ambitious new work, Scheherazade II. Getting to the heart of um, humanity, so much uh, emotion is just erupting. The whole piece is about me being, <laughs> me being uh, definitely um, put to the test. To give some background, from December 2016 to April 2017, you could have heard composer John Adams's work alongside that of Philip Glass and Steve Reich in the Sounds That Changed America season. Across the concerts, Adams's work was celebrated by revisiting career highlights such as Nativity Oratorio El Nino and his explosive opera Doctor Atomic. You could also have heard the much-loved minimalist work Grand Pianola Music and then bringing us up to date as mentioned with his work for violin and orchestra Scheherazade II. I sat down with Adams himself to capture, where possible, the journey of the last 70 years. Do you like looking backwards and forwards? I mean, are you always in that sort of sense of somewhere in the middle? Well, I, I sort of stay in touch with almost all of my pieces. I, I, I have a couple of dogs that I don't perform very often, and they don't get performed very often for probably good reason. But most, most of my pieces, uh, either I conduct myself at one time or another or somebody else does. And um, it's like having a nice family where your kids come to visit frequently. <laughs> you know, what's wonderful about what we do as, as composers is, you know, we write music that never stays in one fixed way. Because every once in a while, just some genius performer like Lilo Josephovitz comes along and 
reveals something in your piece that even the composer didn't realize was there. And I've had pieces that I've had doubts about or thought were maybe not my most successful pieces. And then, you know, a conductor or a violinist or a singer uh, arrives on the scene. And, you know, I've been around long enough now, 35, 40 years, to, uh, you know, I've seen several generations of people um, doing my music and, and revealing more and more things to me about it. What are the advantages and disadvantages of a composer to conduct his own work? I can't think of any disadvantages. Um, I think the advantages are, uh, well, first of all, you know, when you look at a, a score by Mahler, for example, or by Boulez, people who are great conductors, um, you see how practical um, even the most difficult passages, you know, that it, you know, it demands a great deal from the performer, but ultimately it's doable because the, the composer has had hands-on experience. You know, I'm not a huge reviser. I, mean, I don't rip my pieces apart. You know, I, being able to do the piece myself, not be sitting out in the hall while some other conductor does it, gives me really a hands-on experience of what's working and what isn't working. And, you know, for the case of Scheherazade II, the um, big dramatic symphony violin concerto that I wrote for Lila Josefovitz, um, we worked hand-in-hand on the violin part in the course of the writing, and then the next step uh, along the line is taking it from one orchestra to another to another and seeing what works and and seeing what needs to be fixed. Across this season, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Britain Symphonia, New York Philharmonic and the London Symphony Orchestra are performing your work. How do you see those different ensembles? I mean, is, is it very much about different character, different, different kind of ways of approaching? You know, um, orchestras do have personalities. And, you know, I love working with the LSO. They're, they're incredibly quick learners they have fantastic rhythmic uh, intuition and they know my music they've been playing it for so long but you know i've i've had a long history with the bbc orchestra as well and we did a semi-staged nixon in china about 3 3 or 4 years ago at the proms and i've done that opera with so many organizations including the Metropolitan Opera and Los Angeles Philharmonic and and uh, in Frankfurt and uh, you know that there was just something utterly magical about the way the BBC players played it and when the idea came along for my birthday season to do the complete Dr. Atomic and also record it while we're doing it I just felt that the the BBC symphony were that was the band I wanted to work with <laughs> Thank you. 
touched on collaborators. Obviously, collaboration is something that you've always had um, with with your work. Somebody else who's very important to uh, maybe the operas that are being performed is Peter Sellers. That collaboration is maybe one of your longest running? Yes, Peter and I have been working together since, uh, I guess, like about 1985. And that's, I think, kind of an astonishing achievement because, you know, most collaborations will have a, a blossoming and then something often goes wrong. You know, either egos clash or the, the chemistry just isn't there. But there's something just absolutely very, very special about Peter's personality, his creativity, the generosity of his, his mode of working. And his patience, <laughs> because, you know, I can get very difficult. Um, uh, he, he's ob- obviously, like most theater directors, you know, overworked and always running from one city to another. And whereas I, you know, as a composer, I, I stay in one place often and work very, very sustained periods of time. There's something about our our personalities, you know, both the contrasting aspects of them and the, and the harmonious parts of them that seem to work. And I'm, I, I consider it, you know, the most important element in my creative life is my re- relationship with Peter. One of the last major works that was performed at the Barbican was the Gospel According to the Other Mary, um, which is Peter Sellers' collaboration. The the other side of that, or the original point of that, was El Nino, which is going to be performed again. That that's obviously it fell on the millennium, so it, it was it was it was an important work for you. El Nino obviously is about the birth uh, of Jesus and all the kind of magical almost fairy tale quality of, of the nativity story and also you know the violence uh, and terror of it you know when Herod uh, hears about this birth that's going to threaten his authority uh, and the resonances with 20th century massacres of students You mentioned it before, but Doctor Atomic. It seems more relevant now than it's ever ever done. The subject matter of, the, of that opera, it, when you turn on the news, seems to be something that we're constantly history is repeating itself. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I was just thinking the other day how how uh, language changes, but the reality <laughs> stays the same. That first it was the atomic bomb, and when I was growing up, you know, we used the term. Uh, atomic bomb um, and then it became nuclear warfare and nowadays uh, people talk about weapons of mass destruction um, 
but it's all really the same. And um, just a few days ago, my wife and I went to a, a photographic exhibit at the Imperial War Museum here in London of um, Lee Miller, who was a, a great American photojournalist who, who photographed World War II. And in the museum is a whole exhibit of atomic weapons. You know, it, it was just horrifying to look at the how clumsy and and primitive the technology of these weapons were to think back upon my childhood in the, in the 60s uh, and realize how how close the world came to an all-out nuclear war you know when when Kennedy and Khrushchev went head-to-head about nuclear weapons in Cuba I mean I remember being a kid in school and the teacher talking about the very very real possibility of a nuclear war. seems like a good point to maybe move to this i mean in the in the 60s and 70s there there seemed to be a real sort of age of uh, emergence of contemporary composers such as yourselves alongside people like steve reich and philip, philip glass does it feel like y- your music has had the chance to develop and get more prominence in, in recent years you know it it's so hard to make any kind of grand judgment you know the arts uh they morph and, and people's opinions and their sophistication changes uh, over time so I always have to be <laughs> extremely humble about any anything good that happens to me because I always uh, I carry a mental picture of Meyerbeer uh, around with me because you know Meyerbeer was you know he was the biggest name in his time and now he's just sort of a footnote mm. and people who are extremely dear to me are writers like Emily Dickinson or Melville or uh, Walt Whitman were you know virtually un- unknown in their in their time and the most key figures in 19th century American literature so I you know all I can say is that I'm, I'm very humbly aware and grateful that there is an audience I do think that uh, you know, Philip and Steve are 10 years older than I am. So in a way, they were really the real pioneers uh, to break out of a, a period that I think was was really toxic environment, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of post-war uh, European avant-garde. Not that there wasn't really thrilling and wonderful music, but I think I came of age, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, that there was a terrible sense of of distrust between audiences and composers and the composers actually instead of dealing with it they sort of just poked it made it even worse those of us who wrote music that in one way or another was a little more accessible we were severely castigated by our colleagues for being sellouts or uh, you know glad handing or or whatever but 
I think now, you know, young composers, people in their 30s and 40s, uh, even in their 20s, you know, they've seen us, they've seen that audiences actually do appreciate and feel they can access our music. And they've grown up very much aware of pop music and indie rock stars, and they want to have an audience. They don't want to be like classical, misanthropic uh, Adrian Leverkuhns of the of the 70s. I wanted to talk about one of the other works that's being performed, which is the uh, Grand Pianola music. I was quite interested to read that this is very much about a dream, the idea that dreams were inspiring this work. Well, I I had a couple of pieces. You know, when I was uh, in my 30s, I I had some typical writer's blocks, and I also got very interested in, you know, the the psychology of, uh, of Carl Jung. I even had a Jungian therapist for about a year and a half and part of that experience was was becoming very conscious of dreams and so I had some dreams that were uh, amusing and frightening and horrifying and then some that were almost like uh, our crumb cartoons and the Grand Pianola in part was suggested actually not by a dream but by a uh, an image I had while I was on LSD <laughs> I was at the Marlboro Music Festival, and uh, I walked into a rehearsal of the Beethoven Choral Fantasy, and Rudolf Serkin was playing a big shiny Steinway, and as uh, how the Beethoven Choral Fantasy is sort of an LSD trip in itself, it's so weird. And as he played, the piano got longer and longer and longer until it turned into a big black stretch limo. Uh, so that became a sort of... Uh, crazy image. We've touched upon the, the, the operas and, and, and Scheherazade too. I was trying to think of something that sort of joined all of these together and maybe that sense of story it always seems to be needs to be some kind of story behind the the, the work that you compose. Yeah, sometimes there are narratives. Uh, sometimes the narratives are very elusive or very vague. For example, in, in uh, Scheherazade II, which you know has images that just just give enough of a, a clue to what my thinking is. Um, obviously, with the operas, you know they're more succinct narratives. Other times, I'm just motivated by images uh, or uh, ideas from from my life as an American, as somebody living in the early 20th, 21st century. And, you know, instead of writing a piece called Sonata for Piano and Violin, I, I called it Road Movies, mm-hmm. which, you know, was suggested by the image of you know, taking a, taking a road trip in a car through a long, different, differing and varied landscape or uh, the Dharma at Big Sur, which doesn't have a narrative, but was inspired by the idea of the beat poets, particularly Jack Kerouac, coming to the West Coast and 
uh, sort of standing on the edge of the continent and looking westward towards the Orient. One of the other themes that um, has become apparent from some of the works we've talked about is religion. It seems to me you're not necessarily a big believer. Again, going back to the stories, that's important for you. Well, I, I, you know, I, I realize that you know several of my pieces, particularly the two or- oratorios, uh, they're they're jumping off point from from biblical narratives. I'm I'm not a practicing Christian. I wouldn't even call myself a religious person. But for me, you know, the real revelation in my life about music is that it is above and beyond all else. It's about feeling. It's about the composer or the performer sharing his or her feeling with another. Uh, Obviously, music can be appreciated on many levels, intellectual, sensual, you know, just gorgeousness of, of a composer like Ravel, for example. But I think ultimately it's about feeling. I guess, you know, if you're a religious person, you're motivated by kind feelings, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's, you know, what music is for me. It, it's, it's communicating feeling. Not always lovely feelings, sometimes pretty awful feelings, but that's what we do. I don't know if this has changed over time, but looking at some of the more recent works, you very much enjoy having an incredible array of resources, a big, a big wide uh, sort of canvas to, to, to draw upon with, with orchestras and choruses and children's choirs. And is, is, that, is that just something that's come over time that you've, you now enjoy having maybe more, more resources than you would have had? You know, I I can write for orchestra. I mean, it's been my whole life. I, I started listening to orchestral music probably before, you know, I was weaned. And, and I my instrument was the clarinet. And um, I started conducting when I was 12 or 13 and wrote my first orchestra piece when I was about that same age. And so my whole life has been very much governed by my awareness and my love of, of, uh, of orchestral writing but with that said i more and more interested in uh in in getting away from grand projects um it's hard because you know now i have all these conductors and orchestras that want to commission a piece for so and so's retiring and wants a piece to celebrate himself as conductors love to celebrate themselves uh it's hard to say no, but I'm really anxious to get away from it for a while and work on smaller formats. I'm really impressed with the young composers in the U.S. Uh, and seeing how they work four or five or seven or eight players and how imaginative and thrilling their work can be on small format. I was interested to ask, I mean, what, what influences you? What is influencing you right now? You're obviously someone who's always drawing from different sources, whether that be music, art, poetry. You know, I, I think people imagine that composers are far more organized than we really are. You know, I, I, I often don't have any real clear idea what I'm going to do when I sit down. Um, I sort of more like a jazz musician i i go in my studio and and i just kind of riff until i come on something that's interesting you know sometimes i'll have an image uh, a sound image or a riff. mother's day is around the corner 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To make image. But most often it's, it, it's not until I get alone and I am around an instrument like a piano or these days I, I use a you know an electric electronic keyboard and a computer like everybody else does and i believe you have a little cabin a little place where you compose music going back to the 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 sort of the broader canvas of the broader ideas of your life you're obviously a very busy man Where where do you feel most relaxed were you most happy well i can only compose uh at home or in I do have a little Mahler hut that I had built up in in really very remote part of the North California coast, and I'm very happy there. I can't be up there as anywhere near as much as I'd like to be, but I'm not the sort of composer who can compose in a hotel room or you know like like Duke Ellington, who was always on tour and he'd just you know do two sets and then everybody would go home and he'd stay you know with a bottle of Coke and a pack of cigarettes and, and he would, you know, stay with his piano and work until four in the morning. I, I can't do that. I'm a definitely nine to five guy. You know, I get up, uh, take my dogs for a hike in the, in the park um, and get some exercise. And then I get to work around nine and I work uh, until five or six every day. Last question. Um, you've been composing since the age of 10, if my facts are correct. Did you ever foresee yourself where you are now? Was there any doubt? Well, I, you know, I wanted to be a composer. And I think that happened in 1956 when I was, what, I don't know, nine or eight years old. And, and, and our a, a teacher read us a child's biography of Mozart. And I was just riveted by the idea of, of a boy who could compose music. You know, all during my heavy, sweaty anxious adolescence I just had these fantasies of being a composer uh, also a composer and a conductor it's it's kind of alarming how <laughs> how much uh, the fantasy life I had as a teenager actually mimics what I'm doing now I, I feel extremely fortunate that I I'm able to do that you know that I don't have to have a day job to pay the rent you know there are wonderful composers 
and there have been composers who've been horribly stressed by financial problems. I, I feel very spoiled that I'm able to have the life that I have. Moving now from John Adams to Leela Josephowitz, and on the 8th of December 2016, the violinist performed Scheherazade II with the London Symphony Orchestra. With this work, Leela is a storyteller, inhabiting the characters with dazzling acrobatic writing for the solo violin. In this interview, she guides us through the music written for her and her relationship with its composer. I started, though, with where she encountered John Adams's music for the first time. Well, I had been very aware of his music while I was at school at the Curtis Institute. Um, at that time, the school was very conservative in what they considered to be new music. <laughs> new music was Bartok and Berg. So when I left school, I sort of exploded and I was listening to so many living composers and composer that I knew just naturally would suit me so well was John for his love of rhythmic impulse <laughs> and just the way he uses tonality and rhythm. That was sort of a natural decision mm. for me. And I didn't know him at that time. I just thought that I would have a really good time learning and playing his first violin concerto. Um, and I did learn that. And in Seattle, I gave my first performance um, of that piece with Seattle Symphony, and he came to that. And it was just amazing to have him come. And then it was like, it was sort of like a fireworks. All, all of a sudden, we had many, many performances lined up together, wow. including one here that was, um, gosh, I was 22. <laughs> so only a year ago. <laughs> so many, many years back now. Um, and since then, We've done so many performances together of the first violin concerto of the Dharma at Big Sur. I've done his road movies, violin and piano stuff. I've done some of his string quartet stuff. Um, and then finally here comes the big S.2, as I call it. <laughs> You, you mentioned rhythm there, but I was interested to know what else are the strengths of, of him as a string writer? Well, I think he depends on any player, whether it's voice, piano, strings, or winds, to understand his rhythmic language, which has usually a kind of groove to it. It's not sort of a European-style, more irregular, maybe not quite as 
um, in motion sort of groove rhythm. This is something that, from what I have experienced, it's either sort of in your veins or not in your veins. It's very hard to learn something like this if you don't feel it instinctually. Just how you would snap your fingers to the beat or bang a drum at the right moment. Um, There's certain things like that when you're playing his music that's just, it's constantly being asked of you as a player. Also, just that with my sound, I'm constantly experimenting, searching for different ways of having something ring or having something float or having grit and playing around with um, different rhythmic impulses. So there's a sense of um, improvisation that I think is really important that I'm always working on. Let's move on to Scheherazade 2. Even the title itself is a sort of very bold declaration because it's the idea of taking what is one of the most well-known pieces of classical music and create something new, yet I I believe sort of referring back. It's not um, following in any way the same sort of storyline as the original Rimsky-Korsakov, but he had very strong images of in his mind of women over many centuries and many eras um, from many different places in the world who have stood up for themselves, for their strength, for their rights, for their voice against many different odds. The third movement, it's called, uh, the title is called Scheherazade and the Men with Beards. She's tried probably by a religious group of men, condemned to death, This is a very dramatic, very dramatic moment and very obvious place in the piece. Um, And then escapes the evil. But there's not really a a very specific story, more specific than this. Um, Basically, the young, wise young woman, uh, wise beyond her years, is pursued by the men, by the true believers. And they are not believers of her. (laughs) They're believers against her. So the piece sort of introduces her, wise, maybe slightly naive in the beginning, young, but beyond her years, is put in danger by the surroundings, by the circumstances, by the true believers. And the second movement is a long, sort of long, long, long phrased, um, like a very big tone poem. 
love scene where she searches for love, is fighting for love, is um, floating in the ecstasy of love. Third moment is her condemnation, where she is trying to rise above this evil and occasionally has snaps back and fights back until she has a cadenza with the chimbalum um, and at which point the true believers, the men with beards, um, pondering and skulking to give their final condemnation, which they do, and um, it looks like her life will be over. The last moment is about the escape from this danger in the sanctuary that she finds. consider yourself a sort of actress in this in this um, work i definitely see myself um in a role much more so than any other piece of violin repertoire that i've played and it won't come off unless the player thinks herself and i guess hopefully men will play this piece too at some point (laughs) but unless this person considers themselves in a role Mm. as this figure ready to really feel this drama. Um, if you don't, it's sort of like being in a movie without acting in it. Um, yeah. It's essential. It's the blood life of the piece. He was working on it very far in advance, and he had always told me that if I'm going to write a violin concerto, it's got to be so different than the other stuff that I've written. And he certainly uh, did that. Uh, and I think he was thinking a long time about what is this going to be about? And then finally, when he was at the uh, Museum of the Arab World in Paris, he uh, it clicked, I think. Um, After you know, maybe that, that initial idea, while he's composing, does he use you as any kind of sounding board? Well, most of it was once he had composed a great deal of it and he wanted to know what was going to work better, A or B. Yeah. And sometimes I would say A or B, and then sometimes I would say, but if you really want this to happen an extra kind of way, then maybe we should try this. It was fantastic. He's so open to it. And I also, because I knew his writing so well for so many years, it was like a collaboration we've had already since I was in my early 20s. So (laughs) we were, um, we had a huge head start to how this piece was going to get get created and developed. The piece has been debuted. It's, It's out there in the world. Well, I mean, the premiere is always you know, taking a skydive from a plane because you just never quite know. (laughs) You think you, you think you know, but you think you know how it might go. But that's part of the beauty of what I've chosen to do with this, that I don't want to play conventional, predictable repertoire. I don't want things to be hummed um, before I even get to that spot. Um, I really want to give people a fresh experience with music. So this is what I do. This is part of the joys. And, um, you know, you got definite surges of adrenaline along the way with all of this stuff. But it's been wonderful to live 
more with the piece, um, having played it in more performances, mm. of course, can't help but grow. Grow and develop. All those beautiful words, but um, live with the experiences the piece is giving me, which is a huge load of emotions and mm. things to express. It's a, it's a big, big piece, and there's a lot to feel. It's exhausting at times, but it's so rewarding. One thing we maybe didn't mention too much is the modern um, resonances. It's uh, definitely a very still, and I think will remain to be mm. indefinitely a controversial to topic. Men and women, especially in certain areas of the world, still in areas of the world that you think maybe it should be more improved than mm. it is. It's a universal issue. With John, I'm, this is not a in any way a surprising uh, thing for him yeah. to write about and I've had a fair bit in my life of rising up um, and for my own rights personally that he knows about so he knew I would get it <laughs> well, I haven't touched upon what it's like to work not only with a living composer but also to work with someone who conducts and directs his own work how, how, how's that experience it's sort of a um, an experience that can't be replicated in any way. It is so exciting to have the creator also be up there with me and collaborating with me. And when he's asking for something, you know it's coming from the source, which mm. is uh, it's sort of it's a beautiful thing to, to have the directness. Does he challenge you as well? Does he, does he push you a little bit? Well, I mean, the whole piece is about me being... <laughs> <laughs> me being uh, definitely um, put to the test. Mm. It's been uh, it's been great having so many performances now lining up. Um, I've experienced. I mean, this is a because this is such a large, huge emotional scope um, and thing to do. It's uh, something that I experience emotionally every time, and it's definitely not something that you can ever sort of go easy on. This is getting to the heart of um, humanity and. So much, uh, so much emotion is just erupting from this piece that it's an experience for me every time. It's a challenge for me every time. And one of the last few times I played this, I was like, wow, I'm feeling the new challenges of this piece because every time I step on stage to give a performance of this piece, it's like a huge role. So mm. it's um, definitely wonderful to do. My last question, and one that I maybe it's easier to ask you than him, him himself, this is part of celebrations that mark his 70th birthday. I mean, how do you see his legacy? I mean, you, you, you've, 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 lived, you've lived and breathed his music. I mean, you, you must have some perspective on that. Oh, I call him Johnny and he's one of the, I'm one of the few people that's sort of allowed to call him Johnny, but I see the guy, I mean, I see him as kind of 45. I'm just amazed at his uh, endurance, his intelligence, his strength, physical strength too. I mean, running around the world, living in California and jumping on planes, going all over Europe, doing mega rehearsal schedules and interviews and teaching and master classes and performing. This is a schedule that would challenge anybody much younger. And here he is 
jumping around and just doing everything and trying to write masterpieces at at the same moment. So it's um I just think he's a remarkable guy. Two incredibly generous and exceptional artists. Thanks to Leela and John for allowing us to speak to them and their generous insight into the flight of fantasy of their playing and music. I'm Ben Eshmaid. You're listening to an archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.